welcome to Give Him Hell Brigham. Jeff, we are a day late, but we have a phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal agenda tonight, starting with the headline that you put in here ah. that says, and I quote, well, you put in our agenda. This is a headline, and I learned so much. And you want a live reaction on the show, so I have not I read the article, so I don't know the details of this. All I know is that the headline, the headline of this article is Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos won't stop having sex and pooping. And I have so many questions. So many questions. And then the subtitle is, and they're wreaking havoc with Colombia's waterways. This is bananas. Okay. Pablo Escobar, drug kingpin lord of the world, right? Like still probably the most famous and notorious uh, cocaine guy in the world, like outside of bigger than any Mexican cartel leader, like Pablo Escobar was the drug lord, right? Uh, and if you haven't watched Narcos, you need to watch Narcos. There's some nudity, there's some F-bombs, there's some whatever bombs it is in Spanish. There's a ton of drug talk. It's very rated R, so if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff, like, eh, stay away. If you're not, watch it, love it, and learn about Pablo Escobar. While Pablo Escobar was at his peak, he smuggled in four hippos from a United States zoo. Those hippos have been having sex and pooping. What happens when you have sex as a mammal? You reproduce. There are currently somewhere like 80 to 85 hippos that were these four, you know, 20, 30 years ago when Pablo was doing his thing. Now there's 80 and scientists are projecting that this small population of hippos could increase to as many as I got to find the right number because I don't want to as many as 1400 by 2039. The hippos are out of control. They're an exotic creature to Colombia. Obviously, they're not native to Colombia, but they have like they have gained the love and admiration of Colombians everywhere. They're like one of the prime tourist attractions of Colombians. And so the legislature, whatever they're called in Colombia, is now trying to figure out what the heck are we going to do with these hippos because they're growing and they just continue to populate and they're taking over the waters. They're taking over the system. The, the, the headline is bananas, but there is a, <laughs> there is a, uh, there's a few paragraphs that are worth reading. Uh, so I'm just going to read a few snippets of the article for okay. everybody. Uh, one of them, this hippo fleet has tormented Colombia's Puerto Triunfo ecosystem, competing with na native wildlife and polluting waterways with their toxic poops that fuel algae bloom and reduce oxygen available for native fish. Later on, it says that this makes the hippo population control tricky, and scientists still can't agree on what to do with them. Government attempts at management have included castration, but scientists only managed to castrate about one hippo per year since their internal testes are rather tough to reach. I had no idea that hippos had testicles inside their body. Maybe since LeBron is a crybaby and the Lakers got bounced from the playoffs, he can go put his long arms to use because he obviously doesn't want to try playing basketball the last couple of weeks. That's, that's, a, that's a take. 
Um, anyway, so the actual legislator, who is this? It's Natalie Castel Blanco Martinez, whoever that is. She says, for me, it is ne- what is necessary here is to protect and preserve the integrity over our, of our ecosystem over an exotic species, even if this exotic species is super charismatic and super cute. That's the official campaign slogan, I guess, of Sister super Natalie. Uh, apparently, in Colombia, things are so bleak that a hippo is super cute. I love this story. One, I didn't know there were cocaine hippos. Two, did Pablo Escobar give the hippos cocaine? Three, I did not know that hippo crap was toxic, which is I mean, very, all very crap is toxic, right? I mean, I, is it? I guess. Like, I don't, I, mean, know. I don't know. I guess you use manure to like. Yeah, like I don't, I don't think that cow crap is like creating algae blooms, but maybe, I don't know. And four, I did not know that hippos, I mean, I guess it makes sense and maybe they're not reproducing at such a crazy rate. But in my head, when I thought of like hippo reproduction, which uh, admittedly, I haven't thought of a lot. But when I think of hippo reproduction, I don't think of them reproducing so quickly. And when this lady goes from, it goes from four to 80 in the last 20 years, and then it's going to go from 80 to 1400 in the next 20 years, like hippos must be like rabbits. Like they're popping out babies in order to get to 1400. Well, I mean, it's, you get exponentially. So it's like hippo gestational. The gestational period of a hippo is 243 days. That seems oddly specific. So <laughs> I mean, this that, is bananas. That's eight months. They got eight months. So, I mean, yeah, if they're basically one a year, then they're going to start wrapping up pretty quick here. I guess. What a wild story. Cocaine hippos. This is why our show is the best. It's this the is- off season. And there are people who are like digging deep into who's going to be the fourth string tight end that might come in off the scout team. And that's like what people are striving for. No, forget that. We are talking about cocaine hippos on Give Them Hell Brigham. And I absolutely love it. I am here for this story. Have to give a quick hat tip to Dan Sorensen of uh, Ute Zone. He's the one who found this story and brought it into my life. And it truly edified everything that I am today. I'm so pumped about this story. And I want to learn more about the cocaine hippos from Pablo Escobar. This, I hope they make a new season of Narcos that just focuses solely like a, you know, like it's the aftermath. Like the, what, af- I, what I really want is, uh, what's his name? David Attenborough, the planet Earth guy. I want to hear him talk about the cocaine hippos from Pablo Escobar. The hippos were brought to America by cocaine smuggler Pablo Escobar. And now their bionic shit is taking over the country. I I want to hear David Attenborough talk about the hippos. More than anything, that's what I want. (laughs) Maybe we can start one of those change.org petitions. I don't think those have ever actually successfully changed anything. But this one, this could be the one. I yeah. believe in this. I mean, what? I, I don't know. I feel like we need to ask David Attenborough and do one of those, like, how many retweets will it take to get out of this final? Like, how many retweets will it take David Attenborough 
for you to talk about the cocaine hippos. Uh, and maybe this. he'll respond. I don't know. I, I need this to happen so bad. Our next Give Him Hell Brigham shirt is going to be a hippo. But everybody just needs to be prepared for it. I've already started, like, as soon as I read this, I've just been crazy busy today. As soon as I read this, I started going through my head, like, how am I going to make a shirt out of this? How am I going to design a tasteful shirt with a hippo who's crapping and, like, taking a line of cocaine? I don't know. I don't know how to make this tasteful, but we're going to figure it out so that we can pay homage to the cocaine hippos of Colombia that are super charismatic. Super charismatic and super cute. Well, I think everything that's snorting cocaine is charismatic, right? Like oh, you just yeah. tweak. <laughs> but oh yeah, the and this isn't even. I mean, this is yes, this is the wildest headline that we have in our agenda today. But we do have a couple other getting back more into sports related things before we get into said wild things. You bought a $350 box of football cards and instantly regret it. Is that because it's not an NFT? It's not NBA hotshot and you bought physical uh, cards. And you're like, this is stupid. What is this, 1995? Dude, trading cards are bananas. So Target is not even selling like Pokemon Well, that's because someone's died, right? Like someone yeah. got shot. It's fighting insane. Over it. Right. Like the market for trading cards right now is crazy. And I did not know that there was a new player. So I used to collect cards, right? And, and like, I remember Upper Deck. I remember Don Russ. And I remember Tops. Like, those were the brands of cards that I remember. Now there's a new one out there. I don't know how new it is. Maybe it's not that new. Panini. PaniniAmerica.net. They are, like, the hottest sports cards that you could find. One day over, the, like, I, it was sometime last winter, like around Christmas time, I had this idea that I was going to go just buy some football cards. And I couldn't find them anywhere. Like, they were sold out everywhere. And then I started to really look for, like, a month, and I never found them. I could only find them on eBay, and they were going for crazy amounts of money. Well, 2021 rolls around, and Panini America just released, or, well, they're, they're releasing their various types of uh, of trading cards for this year. Like they have different, you know, like, I don't know, some of them are like the, the rookies and college cards. Some of them are for like draft specific. Some of them are just like the futures, like they have different sets. And I was trying to get some online, but they would sell out like faster than a Taylor Swift concert. And so it was really hard to get them. Well, one came up on sale earlier this week and I just jumped, I bought it. And I really didn't think much about it. I just bought it. And once I got it into my cart, it was like, crap, this is a $350 box of cards. This seems like a bad idea, Jeff. That's more but than a black only, stone. Yeah. The only thing that was going through my head was these cards are so hot. Like, there's no way that they won't. You're not going to make your money back. So I just bought it. Didn't even think, right? I immediately regretted it. So what I ended up buying was the uh they're like college football cards they're not obviously they can't do like the sophomores of college football but it's the the guys who are going to be rookies in the nfl during like it would it's the zach wilson's the trevor Lawrence. right i mean am i gonna make back my 350 dollars? probably not they do guarantee that i will have five autographs in this pack i think there's something like 80 something cards in it they guarantee five autographs. So maybe if I get lucky and I get like a Trevor Lawrence autograph or a Najee Harris autograph, maybe, maybe those go and I'm able to recoup my, my, my investment here. But this feels like one of those, 
spur of the moment decisions that uh, I very, very frequently make and very, very rarely do they actually pay off. So I just felt like I needed to tell somebody I haven't told my wife yet. So I had to tell somebody and she informed me that she does not listen to the show. So I feel like I'm safe to tell everybody because she's never going to hear it. Yeah, I was informed as we were talking about the cocaine hippos that, uh, well, I knew my wife also did not listen to the show, but I sent her the article while we were talking about it. And she said, I'm scared to open that. And I said, he used hippos to smuggle cocaine and now they're reproducing in the wild. It's our show intro, apparently. Jeff found the article. She said, glad I don't listen to your show then. Oh, that's, 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 that's hurtful. This is why people should listen to the show. I mean, we are... Uh, we are here for entertainment of all sorts and from like, a, the you know, widest of varieties is the gong show are, of football podcasts. <laughs> it is the gong show. There are people, man, that like, it's so hard to talk about sports. I'm a huge sports fan. I love BYU athletics. And I think about BYU athletics every day, like something BYU related comes into my head. I write articles about BYU athletics every day. I'm always thinking about BYU athletics. It's so hard to like really talk about things that you're not going to hear from everybody. Like at this point in the year, when it comes to June, anybody who has a radio show, a podcast, a blog that they do videos on, they're all covering the exact same stuff. Like people were so pumped when Alex Barcelo announced that he was coming back because that gave KSL, the Des News, the Trib, Sports Illustrated and Cougs Daily, whatever they're called, all the blogs, it gave all of them content for like three days. And I get it, right? Like I, I run Cougar Sports Insider. Content creation is tough to do. And when it's this like drought of content ideas, it's really, really hard. And you pounce on those things like, like like a fat man on a cake because that's all that there is so when it comes to this show we don't want to just regurgitate what you've already heard we want to entertain you we're going to talk about byu athletics fact later on we have a great interview with alex kirby who's going to get into some really great stuff about byu their playbook their offense really cool stuff that you're not going to hear anywhere but give them hell brigham but like how how much can we really sit and talk about the same five stories over and over and over again before it's like guys we've we've heard this you know mm. i just i don't want to be another cog in the byu media wheel that takes the same quote from the press scrum on the 13th day of fall camp and we sit there we talk about it like it's our own original con it's not it's not no. so we're not it's, gonna do that. it's not our original content and we very much made the deliberate decision when we started this venture a year ago that this is we are influencers this this is not a sports podcast this is a sports lifestyle multimedia conglomerate okay <laughs> yeah. that is the entertainment 720 of sports podcasts <laughs> yes yes it is. that's two circles ladies and gentlemen that is entertainment 720 just like pawnee we are bringing entertainment to you and we are spending money to try to make money, and and we're not. 
It is not, you know, so, like, so, Tom, <laughs> like Tom, it is not successful in making us money. So, so far, our, uh, our financials are very similar to Entertainment 720s. Like if we would have had the capital that Sean Ralphio brought to Entertainment 720, we probably would have about the same return given our current ratios. Yeah, the only thing we're missing is, uh, what's his face, the German basketball player to just pay. We need yeah. to hire him uh, debt left to come out and just shoot baskets all the time for us we can maybe we can uh we can bug we can we can get we we'll hire uh hima hima Himuli just left ksl he's at byu tv full-time for him good for him that i was talking to him byu tv is planning and dave mccann has also left ksl and is now full-time just solely byu tv and they're ramping up more content but we can hire Hima to be our official hoops scorer and we'll invite him and he is he'll be part of Give them hell 720. Um, I like it. But we do talk about sports here. And you you enlightened me, you informed me, and you taught me about the rise of the USFL today. I saw a headline, but I had no idea the details that uh, that were behind this comeback. And I, I mean, I don't know if it's going to work. It probably won't because none of these startup leagues do. But if any of them have a chance, I think it's this one. Well, I mean, the USFL the first time around had a good chance and was actually not doing too bad until Donald Trump showed up. Like that is just point blank. That is a fact. And but the we talked about this uh, last or two weeks ago, how and we were like, oh, the spring league, as in the thing that used to be broadcast on Bleacher Report and players have to themselves have to pay to have a chance to play in this league as if they were 14 years old, you know, 10 years old and not in high school yet and playing Pop Warner, you know, <laughs> they, uh, that league had a signed a broadcast deal and was now on Fox and they have one game a week on Fox mainline. And then one, and then the rest of the games are either on FS1 or FS2. So apparently that league bought all of the intellectual property from, and now owns the trademarks and all the original trademarks for the USFL and Fox themselves, Fox Sports, is a part owner of the league. And this year, the run on T- the the Spring League being broadcast, legitimately broadcast on Fox Sports, was a test run before they launched. The USFL is making a comeback in 2022. So they are bringing back a lot of the same names. I don't know what the salary situation is going to be like, but The Rock bought the XFL and was planning on launching it in 2023. So who knows what that's going to happen? You know, what's going to happen with that now? And the the XFL with The Rock and the CFL were in some sort of collaboration of like maybe doing some interleague play or something like that going cross border. Who knows what that's going to happen? But Fox, you know, I mean, because what, and well, ESPN, now took over the NHL contract. It's like ESPN's got everything, right? There's Fox has like what one? They do like one Saturday afternoon baseball game. Like Fox has don't even, no content in the spring. I don't even know if they still have the baseball game. I think it got moved to TBS. Oh, I think it, it did. So it's, yeah, really Fox is struggling for sports content. They have empty channels that they need to put content on. And so they like, they're struggling. And so they, I think- It'll be interesting to see with this one, just because, you know, like the AAF, well, the AAF was paying CBS to broadcast games for them. Like they were buying airtime. They did not have, like, they were not receiving any revenue from their TV deal. Uh, The XFL actually was doing pretty good until, especially on Fox until the pandemic, you know, shut everything down. So it'll be really interesting to see 
how this goes next year. And I'm sure we'll see some BYU guys pop up on those rosters. Um, there's a couple guys playing this year in the league and, you know, how that goes and kind of what kind of commitment there is with the, like the TV, it's like, you know, company itself being invested as an owner of the league and how it gets promoted. Um, yeah, the USFL is back in 2022. And if, if this doesn't work, like at some point, these spring leagues, you got to realize like, it's just, it ain't going to work. Well, we talked about it. Like football for football's sake sounds like a really good idea, but I, I mean it so far, it just hasn't delivered. I mean, even this year with uh, the FCS playing in the spring, like that's, you know, pretty high quality football. That's teams that people are passionate about. It didn't like get eye popping ratings. Like at the end of the day, football for football's sake just doesn't really work. It has to be differentiated enough that it can be intriguing to you, right? Like the XFL yeah, last like- year, it was, it was the XFL last year. They had the new kickoff rules. They had the new, like the one, two or three extra points. They had cameras on the ground all the time. They had friggin' Pat McAfee on the field, talking to players in between plays when they're breaking the huddles. Like you're like, this is wild. I'm into this or it's like, I mean, I'm a big CFL fan. It's like, okay, they play three downs. They play on a bigger field. It's 12 on 12 instead of 11 on 11. You have forward motion out of the backfield. You have anybody who is behind a kicker or the kicker or punter when the ball is punted or kicked is eligible to catch the ball downfield. So you can do an onside punt and recover your own punt and it downfield. Like there's rule differences that make it like, you know, it is fundamental. It is close, but it is like, you can't be the NFL junior like you have to be the nfl's right. cousin you got to be a cousin yeah, like you can't you be got, a sibling you got to play football with like a gun you know like something wild because what i get what i you know you're right garrett what you're saying is absolutely right you got to have some sort of a differentiator that makes you interesting it's a really fine line between a differentiator that makes you interesting and a novelty that will wear off after a week or two uh that's I, unfortunately i think the aaf uh, that's what they found out really quickly that it was cool for week one and then it was just bad football. And so it, it went away really fast. It, it, I don't know. I, I hope it works. Like it would be really cool. I would love to see some of these, you know, these guys get a, another chance to showcase their stuff. I think it'd be great for, for BYU and for college athletes everywhere, but I have my doubts. Yeah. Simple I was that. I, I will believe it when I see it, but I will always at least give them a courtesy watch the first week or two of the season. And it is fun. It's the most interesting part to me of following these new leagues is, you know, reading all the articles like on the sports business journal of what's going on behind the scenes of like in just purely the front office aspect of it, of trying to, you know, it is a monumental effort to launch a new league off you yeah. know, off the ground and get that up and running and so that that's kind of i'm i'm excited even for that part even if it completely falls apart it will give me a steady stream of articles to read for the next year on that front um so speaking See, oh go ahead while you read articles about sports and you educate yourself about business i watch tiktok videos oh i watch and TikTok i want videos too i i watch way way too many tiktok videos and uh I want to start a new segment this this starting this week that is my favorite conspiracy theory of the week that I that I found and learned on TikTok. And today I've got one that might even hit close to home a little bit for you because it involves Russia, it involves Japan, and it involves the supposed fact 
that Finland does not actually exist. Have you ever been to Finland? Um, I have not, but my young men's president when I was in high school, my senior year of high school, was grew up in Finland. And was uh, Finnish. So I mean, my that, whole life may be a lie. Is that a verified fact, or did he just say that he was from Finland? I mean, he has posted on Facebook. He's checked in on Facebook that he's been in Finland. You know, he well, goes home to visit his family. But it so could here's be a the big conspiracy. Lie. It could be because here's the conspiracy, which apparently originated on Reddit. Because once I learned about it on TikTok, I thought, oh, I need to, I need to learn more about this, obviously. So then I, I turned to the ever trusty internet and it led me to several different articles, one of which was on Vice, which I, I spent a lot of time on Vice this week, apparently. But the idea here is that Finland does not exist. It, it goes all the way back to the early 1900s. And it involves Japanese fishing routes. Okay. So the idea about, or the, the, the notion that it doesn't exist is that really the land or the people who say they are from Finland are really from like Sweden or they're from Russia or they're from some other Siberian country, but they're not actually from Finland. So Finland, I didn't know this and I have not verified this, but as the conspiracy theory goes, Nokia is a Finnish company. The number one importer of Nokia products is Japan. Why? Because they're not really using Nokia products. Samsung, they have so many other, you know, electronic or whatever out there. Why do they need Nokia? They don't. But they keep Nokia going because I think this goes back to like World War One. I, I, I didn't read enough about this, but it goes back to like World War One that uh, there was a handshake deal between Russia and Japan that they could fish there and they would use these old routes to exchange fishing goods between Russia and Japan. Finland. Fin, like fishes have fins. Right. But the idea, right, is that the handshake agreement was that we're not going to tell anybody we're going to make up this Finland place. We're going to pretend that it exists. It was part of Russia for a while. And when they got their independence, it had something to do with World War One, and it had something well, it to do was, with whatever, whatever yeah, their trade routes were. Yeah, well, it was they when the Soviet when the when the revolution happened, it was like Finland was part of the Russian Empire. And then it was kind of autonomous. But then when the revolution happened, um, you know, and the Soviet Republic came, Finland was like, nah, fam, we ain't doing that. And then they dipped and kind of went more and became more Nordic than Russian, even though their Finlands are their own thing. Well, Finlands might not even exist. It's, I mean, in theory, had if they were, right? Yeah, if you they know. were real, I get it. Yeah. So anyway, I mean... I, we can't prove that this is not true. We can't prove that it is. But some interesting things like, Gary, you've, you've been to Ukraine. You've been to Russia. Name a fact about Finland. Can you name anything about – I can't name a thing about Finland. The only thing I can tell you about Finland is they speak Finnish and the uh, – they speak, sounds fake. Well, so Finnish, Finnish? is like it's in an – language family like all by itself is like it, it's 
weird well it's not it's weird like people went from finland so they went from the ural mountains which is like the western edge of siberia and then it's like moved over and so it's like the language group that finland it is it's like finnish estonian and then distantly distantly hungarian because it's like yeah, it's just I, this random it's just there like that's it it's just like this weird thing up there in the water and i don't know if it exists actually my mission president served in finland so he might be lying to me too my whole world's crumbling down i mean there's some some interesting i can't name anything about finland i've never known anybody like who went to finland like okay you you, you say that you people claimed that they have been to Finland in the past, but like, I don't know anybody who I've known them from my hometown or from my work or from wherever. And they went on a vacation to Finland and then came back. I've never heard of that happening ever in true. my life. This is true. I, I, I mean, I think that there's reasonable uh, circumstantial evidence here that uh, Finland might not exist. I do have a BYU topic today. It's not a conspiracy theory, but maybe it is. I don't know. It's more of an idea. I'm going to write a lot about this. I've actually started to write about this that will be published on Cougar Sports Insider uh, later this week, maybe next week. I don't know, whenever I get it done. 2020 was 2006, and 2021 will be 2007. Hear me out. I'm on board with 2000, that. 2006, who was the rushing leader for BYU? Curtis Brown. Who was the passing leader? John Beck. Who was the receiving leader? Johnny Harley. They all left. They were all gone in 2007. Let's come to this year. You know, you got Zach Wilson. You've got Dax Milne. Tyler Algiers back. So we're actually one step ahead in 2021. Okay, go to the defensive side of the ball. Cameron Jensen led the team in tackles. He was gone in 2007. Right, 2006 is when he was done. Sack leaders, it was Hala Paongo, who I'm going to admit, I don't know who that is. Like, I thought I was a big blue. I don't, I don't know who Hala Paongo he, he is. He played like his, he was like a walk-on who broke out as a senior. And, that, you know, that was he was a very Bronco defensive lineman. Okay, yeah. Well, didn't know who he was. He was gone. And uh, in PBUs, and, and it's so hard. Sports reference is really good at a lot of things, just for quick stats. They suck at PBUs. Like they just, whatever they're using to calculate or track passes defended, it isn't good. But according to sports reference, Brian Keel led the team in PBUs uh, in 2006 with six. He did come back and play again in 2007. So he, he returned. But other than Keel, Paongo, Cameron Jensen, Johnny Harleen, John Beck, Curtis Brown, all gone. Like Aaron Wagner left, uh, David Nixon came back. Well, he was only a sophomore that year. Yeah, but it was you lost most. I mean, a good chunk of that defense. The receiving leaders. Here are your top three receiving leaders in 2006: Johnny Harleen, Curtis Brown, and McKay Jacobson. Uh, they were all gone in 2007. McKay Jacobson went on a mission. Harleen graduated. Brown graduated. They were replaced by Austin Colley, Dennis Pitta, and Harvey Unga. So it goes deeper, okay? So we take the 2007 leaders, Harvey Unga, Tyler Algier. There's a lot of similarities between those two. I like it. Okay, Max Hall, right? He filled in for John Beck, and I didn't realize how eerily close 
Max Hall's 2007 season was to John Beck's. But just from a yardage standpoint, uh, Beck threw for 3,885 yards in 2006. Hall threw for 3,848 yards in 2007. Like, that's identical, right? I mean, we're talking one completion away from being exactly the same. Right. Okay. Uh, even the backup quarterbacks, like Jason Beck left, and it was a backup, Brandon Gaskins, right, who, who had not been on the roster the year before. Okay, we go to the receiving leaders. All three of them were different. Austin Colley, Dennis Pitt, Harvey Unga. Oh, okay, Max Hall. We've even got we, – we've got Jaron Hall. Jaron Hall has the same last name. He is going to do what Zach did. I've made this comparison. That's why I kind of feel like we don't need to talk about it because I've made this comparison in the past. John Beck was an NFL quarterback. Got drafted the second round by the Dolphins. Everybody knew he was going to the NFL after his senior season. Zach Wilson, everybody knew he was going to the NFL midway through his junior season. Everybody knew. Bonafide NFL prospect. Max Hall came in and did great things. Looked great. Wasn't really an NFL quarterback. And I think you could make the same argument about Jaron Hall that I think he's going to come in. He's going to do great things. Probably not an NFL quarterback. And if he is, it'll be like a Max Hall stint where he's an UDFA and he hopes that he sticks. So I don't really think we need to talk too much about the quarterbacks who've done that before. Receiving leaders. 2007, it was Austin Colley, Dennis Pitta, and Harvey Unga. Okay, well, BYU has their Austin Colley this year, right? Like, they went and got Puka Nakua, who is probably the closest thing to Austin Colley since Austin Colley. Like people have this idea of Puka Nakua being like Cody Hoffman. He's not like, he's a very different receiver than Cody Hoffman. was. Very different. He's a lot closer to Austin Colley than most people realize Puka's only six one. And that might be generous. He plays with speed. He plays with elite hands and he plays with elite route running. That is Austin Colley. Cody Hoffman was like, what? Six, three, six, four. And he wasn't super fast. He was fast enough, but he wasn't super fast. They, they played differently, like obviously super effective, but they played differently. Puka Nakua is much more like Austin Colley than he is like Cody Hoffman. And I think that it's reasonable to say he's more like Austin Colley than any other BYU wide receiver since Austin Colley. Okay. Dennis Pitta filled in for Johnny Harleen. Now, yes, we could argue that Isaac Rex is maybe he's that Pitta, but Dallin Holker is kind of that new addition, right? Like he's the true pass catching tight end. Dennis Pitta eventually became a very good blocking tight end. And, and he, he did well uh, in the NFL or at college as, as a blocking tight end, but he was a receiving threat. Like that's who he was. That's what he was known for. That's why he got drafted. He became a better blocker at the NFL. Most Isaac Rex is an all around tight end, but Dallin Holker has the ability. I don't know if he will or not. Like, I don't think he's going to put up the 800 plus yards that Pitta did, but he has the ability to come in and just be a true receiving threat right off the bat. Dallin Holker or Isaac Rex, pick your one. They are Dennis Pitta. And whichever one of them is not Dennis Pitta is Andrew George, right? Like BYU went from Harleen and, and Dan Coates to Pitta and Andrew George. They're now going from what was supposed to be Bushman and Rex to Rex and Holker. I don't think they miss a beat. So you go through this offense, you look at all of the preseason projections, all of the Vegas lines, all this stuff has BYU finishing the season at about seven and five. I think that's BS. I'm not usually like a super blue goggled guy, but I am such a believer 
in this 2000 was 20 or 2006 was 2020 thing. I really think BYU is going to uh, turn some heads this year. And it starts week one against Arizona, which coincidentally enough was week one again in 2007. Ah, see, you see where I'm going with this. It's starting to get a little freaky. I think it's happening. This is like that uh, JFK Lincoln assassination thing between Lee Harvey Oswald and John Wilkes Booth. Like we're getting to that level of freaky here. Oh yeah. And yeah. Like this is why stuff. Yeah. Looking at this actually, I think I is Harvey Unga. And I think Tyler Algier will probably have a very similar season. Harvey Unga's freshman year that 2007 year when he took over everyone was expecting Fui Vakapuna to come in because Fui had like 500 yards the year before you know was great it's like he came in and rushed for almost 1300 yards 13 touchdowns and had 655 receiving yards like out of nowhere right like it's that was such an underappreciated season by him and actually it's kind of weird because he progressively got worse like he had 1200 yards rushing then 1100 then 1000 and then 650 yards receiving 300. And then he only had 120 his junior year. And then his oh, touchdowns went 17, 15, 12. He got progressively worse, which is kind of weird, but that he was so good. And his ability to be so good is like, that made a huge difference in terms of making things easier for Max Hall. Oh, and it was a super, super quarterback friendly system. Like it's easy to think of Rob and I and get lost into, you know, the go fast, go hard of Rob and I too. But when Dr. And I was, was running on the sidelines in that, that those late 2010s, it was a, such a quarterback friendly offense. And, and we're going to talk about that. This kind of takes us is a good segue into our interview. Uh, you weren't able to make it, but I, I, was able to talk to Alex Kirby. We talked about this a few weeks ago um, that he published his BYU, his 2020 BYU offensive scouting report. And he, um, you know, it's over 350 pages of content dedicated to BYU. I talked with him this morning and we went over, you know, we, we talked about some of these things of, you know, system, what 2020 is going to look like and all these different things. So we're going to take a break right here and uh we will listen to the interview and then you and i will come back and talk about it after that okay we are joined now with alex kirby of throw deep publishing how are you doing this morning alex i'm doing good how are you good uh so tell us a little bit about yourself introduce yourself i know you're playing history coaching history kind of how did you get to be where you're at right now well, that's a long and interesting story, at least to me. But uh, I, I would, first of all, I'm the I'm the special teams coordinator at Ben Davis High School in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, that's my alma mater. That's where I went to high school. I actually have never played organized football. Um, basically, m- my parents thought it was a waste of time growing up, so I really had to fight that battle for a while. But what what ended up happening was. Um, I got on the student radio station when I was in high school, calling the games on Friday nights. Then, then I kind of worked my way into being the video guy there during the week. Um, so I would literally like be at practice going over the, the play calling sheets and film and practice. And then on Friday nights, I would be on the radio being like the color commentator guy. Um, so that kind of got me in, kind of got me into the door to get to know those guys and then after I graduated, I kind of stuck around for a couple of years volunteering and kind of taking on more and more responsibilities um, and just spending time getting better and learning what I didn't know. Um, and, and then uh, 
After that, I, I spent some time working as a student assistant video coordinator at Indiana State University. Um, learned and, uh, a ton. Was that in Terre Haute? Terre Haute, yeah. Terre Haute, Indiana. Yep. That's uh, Larry Bird. That's that's his alma mater. Yep. Uh, it's So obviously it's not known as a football school, but I did learn a ton there. Uh, you know, they play in the Missouri Valley Conference with North Dakota State, South Dakota State, all those guys. It's like um, one of the top FCS leagues. If yeah, not, I mean... I, I mean, so we, it, it was a really cool experience. Um, you know, my first game, actually, we went to Penn State and this was literally the week before everything came crashing down. So I was like there, right. I was basically there for, I think it was Joe Paterno's last home game or his second to last home game. Um, so literally like the week after we're all sitting there watching ESPN and, and reacting the same way everybody else was, um, but yeah, man, I, I, I got to, I was a student there, but I mean, every, basically every moment I wasn't in class, I was hanging around the football office and doing stuff and, and breaking down film. And it was, it was just awesome. It was, it was like a, it was like a, a master's degree, if you will, and just learning all the fine details of, of football and how guys at that level approach the game and how they prepare and the kind of things they look at. Um, so that was really that was a lot of fun, worked a lot of hours, but learned a lot, met some cool people. Um, and you know, I am not a teacher, so I, I did not, uh, I did not pursue a teaching degree. Um, I actually didn't even graduate because I found a good, uh, I found an interesting opportunity outside of that, uh, at the time. Um, and, uh, so I'm not a teacher. I work a normal day job, uh, where, you know, I work in a, a sales role, uh, for, for a normal, uh, day-to-day, uh, software company, basically. Um, but uh, right now I'm, I'm back at my alma mater, uh, where, where I've always felt really comfortable. And I, there's a great people and, and the kids are great. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate to have a, a great tradition here at Ben Davis, uh, you know, where, where the expectations are high, basically. Uh, and, and the coaching and, and the culture and the administration, they're all kind of aligned in the same direction. And, and uh, I feel really fortunate to, to be where I'm at. Awesome. The, uh, that's, you kind of took the, the Mike Leach route, I guess you might say of actually ending up to where you're at. So I can appreciate that. So how did, when did you start, uh, throw deep publishing and kind of how long have you been kind of putting that effort? Cause it's, I mean, we talked about this when you first released your, um, BYU review a couple of weeks ago, how it's like the, t- I added it up. It's like 357 total pages or something like that. Like it's a lot of work. So how did you, or how did you get started into that? Well, I've always been writing in some form or fashion. This actually started my last year at Indiana state. Um, I kind of, the, the thing about working, uh, not that I was a college football coach technically, but I was working in college football is when you, once you get past, uh, November, you know, you start getting into recruiting season. So as a student assistant and video guy at the time, there, there's never really a lot for you to do from like December to, I don't know, March. So you got a lot of time where it's, it's just you in the office by yourself, honestly, because everybody else is, is on the road recruiting. Uh, so I just kind of started writing, started a blog that doesn't exist anymore, but uh, it, it just kind of got me into that uh, kind of habit. So I've been doing that on and off and self-publishing a few books on and off for uh, several years now. What is that? Seven, eight years, something like that. Uh, this version of it, the throw deep publishing is just kind of something I, um, you know, like everybody else, I had a lot of spare time <laughs> over the past year st- staying at home. And uh, it just kind of got me back into it, kind of got me more interested in in, um, 
in putting something like that together. So I've been working on that basically since late last summer. So I'm getting close to about a year here in, in this particular version of it. Um, but it's, it's been fun and, and been fun making connections and, and meeting all kinds of new people on social media. Awesome. So kind of how is the, what was the process like for you? Obviously I know you said you started as a, you know, you started as a fan, it was in high school, but then you went to like the video thing. So kind of what was the process of like, how did you become like an X's and O's expert? Was it just that time at Indiana state? Like, where, I mean, you actually were able to sit in with coaches and kind of learn at their feet as they were breaking down film and telling you like, this is what we want. Like, these are the shots we want. This is like what to look for as you're prepping game film for us or kind of where did educationally, I guess, how did that sort through? Well, this is always fun to talk about because like, I'm, I'm only 32, but I feel like when I talk about this, um, you know, it seems like a million years ago internet in, in terms of internet years, because when I was trying to get more knowledge and learn about this, there was no YouTube. Uh, there was, there wasn't this huge community of coaches online that are, that were sharing their information. There were a couple of websites where you could kind of find some old playbooks and things like that. But basically like I went to the library, I, I tried to find every book that I could. I really got interested in it, to be honest with you. Uh, nobody in my family really cared about sports, but I really got interested in it from playing Madden football. Like I had no idea what football was really. I like, and then I started playing the game. I was like, Oh, this is, this is pretty cool. I like this. It was just kind of one of those things that happened. Um, but honestly, it was just, it was just a matter of trying to find as many different resources as I could. You know, I found uh, the Bill Walsh book, finding the winning edge. I found that in the library, had no idea, you know, that like apparently only 20 of them exist in the whole world anymore. But that was something that, uh, you know, they've got, I started copying like the plays in the back of the book by hand, because that was the only thing I knew to do. Um, I found a couple of websites, one website, one of the first ones that I found was uh, westcoastoffense.com, which is still up by the way, has a lot of, has a lot of the old verbiage and things like that from the Bill Walsh offense. And the cool thing about that was because that was like the only site that had like any real, x's and o's like deep x's and o's terminology like i just ended up memorizing like all the basic west coast offense terminology and the thing about that was when i got to indiana state guess what offense they were using like what guess you know guess what terminology they were using in the playbook so i literally walked in now i didn't know the whole offense but like i walked in i was like oh okay i i get this and so it, it was a lot easier um to do that, you know, it was, it's, it was just kind of an ongoing process and it still is, you know, I, and I'm not being falsely modest when I say, I always feel like I've got so much to learn because every time I turn on a new team, there's a new perspective, there's a new strategy, there's something that I've never seen before or haven't, you know, haven't, uh, haven't looked at in a certain perspective. So um, it's, that that's kind of a long winded way of saying it. it took a long time to get where I'm at. And I've got a long, I got a long way to go. Uh, there's still all these, a lot of people who know more than I do, but I just enjoy studying it. That's great. Uh, so if I know you kind of have honed in on doing more of like the written, you know, in publishing stuff, who are a couple people like of YouTube channels where you would tell the random person, like if you are more of a, you know, visual learner where you need like a walkthrough and video, who where's the quickest place that someone can go to increase their football IQ? Um, you know, I would say 
there, there's a, there's a lot of guys, honestly, there's, and I'm no matter who I say, I'm going to be leaving out like 10 guys, but I, the, the first one I would say, if you, if you want to learn about defense, coach Vass on YouTube has a great YouTube channel. He's also got a lot of stuff on Patreon that I highly recommend that you invest in. I'm a, I'm a member myself. Um, so, uh, and he didn't pay me to say that, but I'm just, I'm just saying that that's something that, uh, that I highly recommend because he's, he's got it down. Like if you watch and you don't have to pay anything for the YouTube videos, obviously I encourage people to check that stuff out, but he walks you through all kinds of these complex coverages that you're going to see on Saturdays and Sundays. And it's really interesting stuff. Um, in general, you know, uh, coach, uh, Nicholas Banstra on YouTube, he, he has one of those channels where he's had guys all the way from high school to like major college guys. I mean, he had Don Brown on a couple of weeks ago. Um, he, he basically just kind of, and I, and I've, uh, I've done a session on there as well. He basically just kind of invites people on and lets them present on whatever topic they want to talk about. Uh, and, it, and it's really interesting. I mean, if you go through his channel, you will find pretty much every football topic imaginable uh, through his playlist. So I, I would, those are the two one, the, the two channels that, that come to mind uh, right away. Well, so we'll link to those in the show notes for those of us uneducated folks who want to better ourselves in the off season, right? We've got to, if the team is in the, in the weight room and in the classroom getting better, we got to get better as fans too. Mm-hmm. Um, so now kind of we've covered your background. Let's talk to the real reason we had you on here, your wonderful overview, kind of review of the BYU offense in 2020 and really what, uh, you know, Jeff Grimes and Aaron Roderick kind of cooked up. Um, and so what did you like most about the BYU offense last year and what they did with Zach Wilson? Well, the thing like, so I'm in Indiana, right. And, and so naturally BYU doesn't like, I don't have BYU games naturally coming across my local television necessarily all the time. So it was, it was kind of, interesting the way it came about but I try to watch and 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 kind of scan through and peek at as much as many different teams as possible and and the couple things that stood out to me and why I kind of pursued this further was because because of the way that uh, BYU uses multiple shifts and motions uh, pre-snap which is something that I'm a big believer in offensively and if you talk to any defensive coordinator they will tell you that having to move guys around a bunch before the snap and having the, having their players have to reestablish and think about what, what their responsibilities are now. That, that's a challenge. Um, the, I wrote a blog post on the website a, a while back and I keep referencing this to anybody that I talk to, but it really, they, they really do basically everything. I, it was, it was, it was called five, five simple ways to make your offense more dangerous. And it was a list of five things that you don't have to install a bunch of new plays. You don't have to, you know, spend two weeks installing anything, but it's like really simple things that will each, if you, if you spend five minutes on it, the defense is going to have to spend 20 minutes preparing for answers to all these things. And one of them was flipping the running back from side to side pre-snap. And, and that might not sound like a big deal, but if you're, if you're a really big gun run team, like BYU is, um, it really makes it tough to set up responsibilities, especially if you're talking about defending any kind of option play or RPO stuff. Uh, a lot of that is based off where the running back lines up uh, defensively defensive coordinators spend a lot of time watching that single back. Does he line up in a specific place on this play? Does he line up in a specific place on this play? What are the correlations there? That's a big deal. Uh, and, and a lot of times, uh, you know, for, for fans who might not realize this, if you watch a lot of teams on Saturdays, especially in college, um, 
there's a lot of teams where the it's it can be as simple as if the running back is more behind the quarterback in the gun it's it's heavy heavy run read if he's even or up front ahead of the quarterback it's obviously a heavy pass read like there's a lot of teams that do that and that's why that's why defensive coordinators spend a lot of time because if you can pick up those keys uh you know obviously you can get a jump on what's going so it's little things like that that may that BYU does and I expect Baylor to do obviously this coming year is a lot of those same things that really just it's it's a lot of those little things they don't run a ton of concepts but they get to them a thousand different ways to make you really have to sit there and think about things before the ball is snapped which as a defender makes you play slower that, that's kind of really interesting and it's this is something that I've uh you know I've talked about with um, you know, some members of the BYU staff as well about like having a menu, right? Like it sounds like their approach is like you can have a big enough menu where you can really have mastery and not have to worry about a ton of different things, but it's easy to throw in and say, you know, do a jet mode instead of lining up in a certain formation, just line up this way and do a jet over. And then that can mess with the defense, but it doesn't actually change anything post snap for the players. And so that's, is that kind of, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, that's kind of the approach yeah. that you found as you dug through everything. Exactly. And you know, on paper, you might not think like, who cares, right? They're just starting a different place, but they're running the same thing. But like de defenders are rule followers. Basically. I heard a coach say that a long time ago and it, and it, and it really kind of gets you inside the mentality of, of both sides of the ball. It, defenders are rule followers, meaning like when they see a certain formation, They've been practicing all week to respond to it this way, especially if you get some of those weird formations like empty or, you know, four, four receivers on one side. If you get into stuff like that, there's a very limited menu of what the defense can do. So the formations tremendously affect the defense and especially motions and then shifting multiple tight ends and running backs around. So the more movement that you can create before the snap, the better. Now you might say, well, why doesn't everybody do that? Well, there's a lot of other things that you can do as well. And everybody has their own style, but BYU was really able to get good at a few things. Uh, and once they got good at those few things, obviously, you know, you saw, they ran all kinds of gadgets. They ran all kinds of interesting other uh, run and pass concepts, but once you get good at a few core things and you can, and you can line up in them a bunch of different ways. I mean, that is, that's really hard to prepare for and, and consistently stop defensively. So do you think that the limited number of concepts, I guess, how do you think that will, one, how do you think the approach will change with the loss of Zach Wilson? Like, is that something where maybe you look at everything he did last year and how great he was is, you know, and obviously any time there's always potential for huge drop off anytime you get a new starting QB, but especially when you lose one who goes number two overall, um, you know, so do you think that the scheme is designed to, I guess, be QB friendly and where, because of the limited number of actual post-snap reads of what's going on, you know, should somebody be able to step in and kind of keep things going, especially with all the pieces coming back around him at the other skill positions? Yeah. I mean, I don't anticipate it changing all that much because, you know, it's not like they were running the triple option with Zach Wilson, right? Like Zach, right. Zach Wilson was a really athletic quarterback, um, and they did a lot of sprint out boots, all that stuff. They did a lot. They did that a lot of different ways, but I, I think it's comparable to like the, the Kyle Shanahan scheme where he does a lot of that, that same stuff. And really, you know, you never want to say anybody can play quarterback in that offense. Cause that's not realistic, but they do a really good job of really limiting the amount of things that he had to learn. 
and really just letting him go play. And I think obviously that speaks to, first of all, that speaks to good coaching because I think coaches lose more games than they win most of the time. If you look at across the board. Um, but I think once I don't know that they have to change a whole lot because if you can run the wide zone effectively, that's one of the best run schemes in football, I believe, because you can do so many other things off of that, um, that naturally complement it. So, uh, maybe, you know, depending on the, depending on what, uh, what the next guy is good at, uh, his name escapes me. I think Romney, right. Uh, well, there's kind of a three-way battle between, uh, Jaron Hall and Baylor Romney and, uh, Another kid, uh, Jacob Conover, who is who was a four star himself, but is still fresh in the program. The, yeah, I mean, so the only the, the biggest thing I can think of, depending on whoever ends up coming out number one, is how good are they? How much are they going to emphasize the pass game outside the hash marks, outside the numbers? Because that was something that uh, Zach Wilson did a lot of. They ran a lot of those kind of um, deep drop back concepts where maybe you had a double square out or a double fade or something like that. Um, where he's really just picking a side and, and making those long distance throws. So depending on who is the starter and what they're good at, you might see a little bit more, a little bit less of that. I, I don't know, but overall, I can't imagine that things are going to change that much because this is a really quarterback friendly offense. Okay. So, yeah. So that's kind of, I guess what I was getting at it is quarterback friendly. It's not like, you know, there wasn't this, uh, they were asking him to do so much that it's going to be super hard to replace. So I guess the flip side of that is, I mean, I guess the Jets are a branch off of that Shanahan offense now with their new staff that do you think that because he was asked to do so little, that will be a hindrance to him at the next level? Or is that just part of the progression? And that's kind of expected some lumps and bruises on the way. Yeah, I, I, the Zach, I'll I'll be honest with you. I, you know, Zach Wilson did a lot of really good things in college, um, but nobody knows how he's going to translate. I don't care. You know, I don't care if you put somebody on the, everybody on the jets on a lie detector test, nobody really knows. They feel really good about him. Obviously that's why they took him number two, but until you get in pads and you, you got fans of the stands screaming at you and you got the lights on, like nobody really knows. Now, that being said, um, I think, I think that, like you said, the offense that they're going to have him run is going to be very helpful. And as long as they can, as long as they can introduce it in a way that doesn't overload him, you know, we'll see. I, 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 I'm like, I, I've told a lot of people, you know, I'm not a quarterback draft guru. I don't pretend to be one uh, because I think, you know, if the best GMs in the business don't know, then I certainly don't know. But I, I would just say that he's, he's definitely got a lot of athletic potential. And if he can limit his uh, it's more about limiting mistakes than creating big plays. If he can limit the mistakes and limit turnovers um, then I think he's going to be able to survive and, and thrive in, in that, in that environment. Um, so also looking forward to 2021, now that we've kind of talked about quarterback position, who were some of your other players that just jumped off, you know, as you were watching Phil that just kind of jumped off the screen at you? Well, I would say that, you know, going back to one of your previous questions, how much is the offense going to change? And this is another reason why I, I don't think it's going to change that much is because you've got several key players coming back who are big contributors, you know, uh, Tyler Algier, Gunnar Romney, Isaac Rex, all three of those guys. Uh, who were, you know, who were a big part of a really explosive offense at times and who, who, who were really put in all the right places. So I, I don't think, I don't think you're going to see that much different, but I think all three of those guys, like those are guys you got to worry about, especially at the tight end Rex at the tight end position. 
um, because they move so many guys around pre-snap, especially the tight end, like they were really good at putting him in some really great spots to make plays. Uh, so I, I, it's going to be interesting to see, but that's why, I, you know, if I'm, if I'm in, if I'm preparing for BYU, if I'm, you know, one of the opposing coaches in that conference preparing for BYU, I'm not, I'm not expecting anything drastically different to come this fall. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing like, okay, we got to defend wide zone. We got to defend the boot and we got to find a way to get to him on, on those uh, straight drop back passes. Like those are the three things that I'm worried about. And I know you and I kind of talked about this, uh, that, you know, the team did a kind of simulated pro day, whatever, at the end of spring ball before the actual pro day. And uh, Tyler Algier has added some speed and ran a four, three, nine, which is mind boggling. And his size and is kind of, is very scary for opposing defenses. And that gives a lot of leeway to whoever the new quarterback is that's getting broken in. Um, So how, when you're watching film, I think one of the hardest things, and I think this is, more so obviously since defense is reactionary compared to uh, offense um one of the hard things to do and it's personally like why i if points are off the board i won't complain about a defense no matter boring it is because it's hard to parse like what is a player making a mistake versus you know you being able to read the mind of a coach and it's a lot harder to do that right like on defense so kind of how do you go through that of you know figure out like where this seems like the player screwed up or they weren't on the same page or where you're just kind of scratching your head and being like, why did they call that? Like, what is going on here with this game, you know, with this game plan? You know, that's a really good question. And, and the, first of all, I'll give you the broad answer. The broad answer is the best coaches in the business still struggle with that. Uh, because especially when you get to the college and pro level, there's so many tiny changes week to week in the game plan. Like you may be playing a certain, base front on defense, but you may be asking those linebackers to do something a little bit different each week, depending on the type of team that you're facing. So, uh, you know, honestly, the, the best, the best answer I can give you is, you know, you, you got to watch a ton of film on the team, get a lot of, it's all about the context. Um, but then at the end of the day, if like, if I'm preparing for an opponent, it really just comes down to my best guess at a certain point. Um, now, if there, if, if a team is, consistently uh you know sending a blitz against a quarterback who's consistently burning them okay well that's the coach's fault like you got to make some adjustments there but when you get into the nitty-gritty and you're kind of on that line it really that's that's what coaches get paid for right when they're preparing is is to try to make those guesses so um there's not one broad answer i could give you because like i said you could you could show a couple of really two really experienced coaches uh the same film and give them that question and they might give you two totally different answers based on their best guess and what they know about the scheme and what they know about the other coach um i i've been in a lot of those meetings at a couple different levels where you know there's some disagreement and that's and that's you know the business of coaching that's that's part of the game is you got to figure that out so um my best answer to you is is to try to get as much film time and context in the scheme that you're looking at and make your best guess. <laughs> that That's what it comes down to. So, I mean, not to discount your own work, but it is, you know, it is, it is kind of, and it like I said, it's a lot easier on offense, but it's just kind of, as you, you get the repetitions, right. Where you see it goes from something that was different to, it starts to feel like something that was out of place. And it's like, you kind of, you, as you get to know the coach, right? Like it's, you're saying sure. like, this just doesn't seem like if something it, that coach would do. So it's probably a player issue. Yeah. I mean, and, and the other thing is, 
if you're seeing something over and over again in a game, then it's probably something they worked on. Right. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, even when I'm, when I'm breaking down film for either a project or maybe even our, one of a, the opponents that we're going to face at the high school level, uh, sometimes you see something weird and it's like, all right, I'm going to make a note of that and see if that comes up later. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. In that case, you're like, okay, well then the kid screwed up and he lined up wrong or something. And sometimes that happens. I mean, that happens more than many coaches would, would like, right. It, for kids to screw something up. So sometimes that happens. It's all, like I said, it's all about context. And and so if you, if you watch, you know, if you're getting late in the season and you're, you're in the playoffs as a high school coach and you got 10 games to break down and something weird shows up in week three and you never see it again, well, you know, that's probably something you don't have to worry about. It's right. it, so the more context you have, the better. So it's, I think as a fan, if we're not in like, you know, really getting in there where you can kind of see things cluster out of to what actually happens more often, you kind of, you know, you kind of latch on to those one that, you know, you kind of latch on to things as like a, what the hell are they asking him to do? Like, this is ridiculous. And you're like, eh, well, maybe not unless it's happening all the time. Um, so that's good advice. I mean, just for his approaching, you know, watching a random game on a Saturday afternoon. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, and like I said, coaches, even coaches who've, who've done this at any level for any length of time, I mean, they, they'll say the same thing, right? They'll see something on TV. I can't believe they did that. Well, you don't know what that player was being told to do in the meeting all week um, because they might've seen something on film. They were trying to take advantage of like, there's so many little things like that. I think Aaron Rodgers said something to that effect, you know, yeah, the NFL sells the film. Like you can go and watch all the coaching film, but you still don't know what's being said in the meeting. And he's absolutely right. Now, that being said, I'm still going to have an opinion because, you know, why not? Like it's not, it's that's that's the fun part about it to discuss that. But yeah, there's so many little details like that that you and I will never see because we're not in those meetings. And not even not even just on the meetings, not in, you know, not on the headset of what exactly. exactly. I mean, because once the lights go on, you know, once you get past your 10, maybe your program does a 20 play script, it's all bets are off. Right. <laughs> I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I can remember I was at Indiana state. We were playing at Western Kentucky for a game. And I distinctly remember our head coach talking about a certain player. What is he doing in there on offense? And then that player catches like a 30 yard catch and run pass for that sets up another score for us. So you, you sometimes, sometimes stuff just happens. You, you know, you got 22 guys out there and, and nobody, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, but uh, sometimes the, the, one of the receivers needs to get subbed out and somebody else steps in his spot and he ends up in the right place at the right time. And everybody tries to extrapolate way too much information from that. So it gives the, the other team more something else to think about. Awesome. The, so what are your overall thoughts on BYU's offensive approach and how, you know, obviously being a, you know, kind of, mid-major uh well mid-major program with a major fan base and you know the limited talent pool of being a religious school i guess what are your overall thoughts on the offensive approach and how do you think this staff can create an edge given the limited talent pool well i would say that they're doing exactly what i would do in that case which is which is really create at least offensively you know i'll be honest i didn't spend really that much time at all looking at the defensive side of the ball when i when i went and did this because the whole project was about the offense but offensively for byu um they're doing everything possible to create an edge with the scheme that they have they're not they're 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 giving you know a lot of times coaches talk about expensive schemes versus cheap schemes meaning like if, if something is a cheap play to install it means 
hey, we can put this in and we can get good at it or good enough at it in three to four days. And that can set up a lot of other things. So in terms of, you know, we're getting a good return on investment versus like, you know, the wide zone is a really cheap scheme. Like you, you, you don't have to run a lot of other run schemes alongside it because it's so adaptable to pretty much anything that it's going to see. Uh, and alongside of that, as we've already talked about, the wide zone sets up all kinds of boot fakes, run fake screens. You can run like fake reverses off of it. There's so much, it, you know, I grew up in Indianapolis, obviously, and I grew up with the, the Peyton, watching Peyton Manning's offense here for so many years. And a lot of that was based off the wide zone. And he, they built a really, really powerful play action attack uh, to those guys off the wide zone because it takes, it takes so much longer to get the ball and carry out that fake that, you know, if you can hold that defense for an extra second where they don't know whether it's a run or a pass, that's an extra second where that receiver has to get deeper or behind the DB and an extra second doesn't sound like that much, but when the average play is only like four or five seconds long, that's a big deal. So I'm a huge fan of what they do offensively. And that's, that's why I spent a lot of time uh, looking at this. You know, I'm a big fan of, of, of the wide zone. I'm a big fan of using multiple formations and I'm a big fan of, of uh, making your opponent worry about all sorts of gadget plays like they did this year. That's another thing that again, you know, you can, the players love it. You can walk through that and install it in a, in a day. You, it's not something you're going to run in practice 20 times, but it's something on defense that you have to go, all right, guys, well, let's not be, let's not like crash down on that screen all of a sudden, or that run play all of a sudden, because you never know, there could be a flea flicker reverse. So all of the, all of those things really do a good job of maximizing the talent that they have. Um, and it's, it, it's another example of, uh, of, basically doing a lot of, again, cheap, inexpensive things that take more time on the defensive side of the ball to prepare for. So what, you know, with those gadget plays, like as a coach, if you're preparing um, for a game, you know, and obviously like we've harped on this over and over on our show for that. It's like, we don't believe in establishing the run, like, you know, establishing the run to win, win a game is kind of, that's an old outdated vanity metric. Right. And so, you know, right. Like you need to run the ball to open up play action, whether you're actually good at running the ball is, you know, irrelevant, right. To being able to hold them there. Cause you have to keep them honest. So kind of on those gadget plays or, you know, when you're saying play action, kind of what percentage of things do you have to do out of the norm to like, keep people honest, right? Like, is it like, you know, if you're obviously, if you only do like one trick play all season, no one's ever going to think about doing it, but is it like one or two a game? Is that enough to like, really be like, okay, just to live kind of rent free in the back of the coordinator's mind of, well, they might pull this out. So we got to be ready for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's another one of those questions that there's a lot of debate about And the, you know, you talk to any coach, you talk to 20 different coaches, they'll probably give you 20 different answers on that. I would just say that um, in my experience, as you know, we we're pretty aggressive, especially on special teams here where I'm at, at Ben Davis. And, and uh, one thing that I have noticed is that when you are aggressive in that respect um, for some reason, other teams aren't as aggressive coming back at you because they assume that you are going to be, because you spend so much time on it in practice, you are going to be prepared if somebody tries to do that on you. Um, so I would say, Ooh, I've never thought about that before that, that that's if you, you know, and again, I didn't watch the defensive side of the ball for BYU, but I would guess that BYU did not have nearly the amount of gadget plays running on them that they ran against other people. 
Um, and a lot of that is you're kind of taking the momentum. You're kind of taking the initiative away from the other team. They spend so much time being reactive in practice that it, it's just, it's a little bit of psychology and it's a little bit of situational stuff. Um, but that's something that you see at pretty much all level that, you know, going all the way back to, you know, Paul Brown, Bill Walsh, Paul Brown used to always like to run a trick play before the other team, because he felt like it was kind of beating him to the, to the punch and kind of taking the initiative away from the other team. And so for the rest of the game, he felt like that was something that stuck in the other team's mind. And they were always kind of playing from behind a little bit, no matter what the score actually said. So um, that's that to me, that's what really running a trick play is all about versus like trying to keep somebody honest or whatever. It's more about the, it's just as much about the psychological side of not only the kids, but the play caller as well, because now as a defensive play caller, you're like, well, I I'm not sure if I want to go back to that super aggressive stuff because who knows what else they got. Right. Um, and, and so sometimes, you know, obviously, you know, we've had, we've had trick plays run on us at the high school level. And sometimes you just, sometimes you just got a perfect call at the right time and you can't really get too down on yourself because, Hey guys, look, I would have fallen for that too. Don't worry about it. Let's move on. And that's, again, that's part of the psychological part of the game is if you can move on from a big mistake, just like when a corner gets burned for a touchdown or something, he has to put that behind him. Your kids have to put that behind them. But to me, that's where the real benefit of a trick play is. Um, obviously you want to have you, it's always good to have something in your back pocket in a key situation. If it's, if you're on the goal line, if it's fourth and one or something and you have to have it, it's always good to have that extra option, but the better, the better choice is when you can pull it out of nowhere, or maybe the first play, first couple plays of the game and really set the tone for the rest of the game, man, that, that can really, that can really help your kids out, especially when what you're talking about, if you're, if you're maybe not quite as talented as the other team. Uh, so you got to find your edges somewhere. And I think that's another benefit of, of being so aggressive in that respect. Awesome. I mean, thanks for hopping on and chatting today. Again, we're talking to Alex Kirby from Throw Deep Publishing. And now as we are in the, I mean, I work for a financial company at a fintech, you know, my co-host Jeff works for a bank. You are a big crypto guy. You know, I, I see you comment, you talk about, you know, somewhat. So kind of, do you have any thoughts financial thoughts of the crypto market that you would like to share with our listeners, because we get way into the weeds because the offensive is long. <laughs> the off season is long. <laughs> I would just say, uh, first of all, I'm not a crypto expert whatsoever. So take all this with a grain of salt. Uh, but I would, I would just say to people, you know, there aren't a ton of right now. Anyway, there are not a ton of really what I would call sound crypto investment opportunities. Uh, and if you're following somebody on social media who has a new coin for you to buy every single day, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. They're being paid to do that. All right. Um, so I can tell you, I don't have, I know people just must assume that I've got like six figures invested in crypto because I talk about it all the time. I don't have nearly as much as people might think that I do. Um, it's something that I, that I like to play around with, but I will tell you that most, I can only tell you what I'm doing. Most of what I hold are, is really boring. I got Bitcoin, I got Ethereum, and I got Link because those are the three assets that the crypto community cannot function without at this point. Um, and I'm I'm not a day trader. I have no idea whether it's going to go up or down tomorrow. Uh, I'm I'm when I buy something, I'm buying to hold on to it for ten years uh, because that that's kind of my. Uh, and other people might be the other way, and that's fine. But I'm just telling you what I do. Um, protect your money. Be smart about it. 
Uh, you know, if you want to throw 1% of that at some meme coin or whatever, go for it, but don't be stupid and, and don't fall for a lot of these. It's easy to be an expert in a bull market, right? Like everybody on Twitter is, has charts all over their timeline when the price is only going up and everybody's an expert. I haven't seen so many of those people lately uh, because the last couple of weeks have been kind of a bloodbath. So um, I would just tell you what I do. I, I'm buying long-term. I'm not trying to flip anything for a quick profit. Uh, just try to get a good understanding of, of things that solve a specific problem and things that basically fit into the greater ecosystem. And, and those three assets, Bitcoin, Link, and Ethereum are, are, uh, are basically fit that description. They're not going anywhere. Like they might go down tomorrow, but they're not going to go to zero because there's just, it's not going to happen. Um, and uh, that, that's, again, I'm not an expert, but I'm just telling you what I do. So I, I would just say that. Well, that's good. You're a man of the people. Uh, I don't know, do you have any questions for me or anything else you want to share with us of, you know, share with our listeners about where they can find you? Um, I know you did have, obviously, thirdeeppublishing.com is your website where you can buy the 2020 BYU Offensive Review. Yeah, I mean, throwdeeppublishing.com, that's, that's really not just the, that's really not just my stuff over the next uh, few months, you're going to see a lot of coaches putting together a lot of video content on there. Uh, have a have a great clinic, uh, about six hours worth of, of chalk talk on on uh, a high school version of basically it's the high school version of the Dave Aranda defense, the tight front, uh, you know, learning about coverages and blitzes. I learned a ton just going through and, and working on that with uh, a great young coach out of uh, out of Florida, out of uh, Florida. And, uh, you know, we're going to see more of that stuff on on the website, excuse me, uh, as as the year goes along. Um, but, uh, I'm really excited and, and I appreciate you having me on because this was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks. Ann. And again, what's your Twitter, ha- Twitter handle for if it's Alex, just Alex Kirby, is a- Alex, Alex, Alex J Kirby. That's what it is. Alex J Kirby. So fine. Go follow Alex. He is a great follow. He's always, you're always putting out content. And I think you were one of the first kind of people in that coaching realm that kind of, you know, now I follow a truckload of people just kind of, you know, following you and seeing who you interact with. And I've learned a lot over the last year. So if you want to learn more about the game, Alex is definitely a great place to start. And obviously as long as, as well as his uh, 2020 BYU offensive scouting report, which is worth every penny. So thanks again for taking the time to hop on. Awesome. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Okay. So Again, that was Alex Kirby. Um, and, you know, I tried to, I got him to talk about crypto at the end in true game Hilbert and fashion. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't let him skip that up, but he, you know, going back to what you said, leading into the interview, we talked about like the QB friendly system and how it is very similar. You know, we talked about how Zach Wilson wasn't really asked to do a lot. And that's very similar. Like the Robert and I, the original 1.0 Robert and I offense was very, very basic. It was like, you're going to run wide. Like you're going to run the ball out wide. You're going to do a lot. Instead of sweeps, you're going to do swing passes to the running back all the dang time. You're going to have a handful of routes. Like you have a play side route package, then everything else, like you go back and watch that old tape. It was like, everything was a backside out. And it was just like, if it wasn't open, have Beck look back over and drag it over there. John Max Hall's arm wasn't as strong. So they kind of switched that over to being more of just like a drag and just kind of having someone cutting across the middle, but whatever, it was very, very basic. And it was just get guys moving around. And so it, it was so good though. Right. It, it, like people forget that in 2010, Jake Heaps was a pretty darn good freshman quarterback for BYU. Like he set most of the freshman records 
that year. I mean, he finished the season like he wasn't. It was Jake Heaps. Like we all know what he he came to be or developed into, but he completed 57% of his passes, 20, 2,300 plus yards, 50 touchdowns, nine picks as a true freshman that ultimately wasn't as good as his recruiting ranking, right? Like that's a, that's a very quarterback friendly system. Jake Heaps started to decline once an eye left. And I think Aaron Roderick's system is right there. Still do not understand why Jake Heaps, if going back in time, right? He's left BYU after 2011 and transferred to Kansas in 2012. I think his career could have been very, very different had he in 2012, that was when Mike Leach got hired. And if he had gone and back into that Robert and I air raid system playing for Mike Leach and Pullman, I think things could have been very different for him. But yeah, I, I agree. It was a very simple thing. In his home state. Wow. This is something to think about. Why didn't he do that? Why the hell did he go to Kansas? Uh, I think it was to get as far away from his family as possible. They're his parents. Like there was an article about. Yeah, there was some drama. Yeah. Um, And so he, but anyway, so Alex, yeah, brought that up of where the actual like post snap, what BYU is doing is very basic. Like it's nothing super complicated. So which lends itself to a lot of position mastery, but it's the formations and the motions are where things are like, that is where things get really hard for the defense and you get the defense out of place, but then you're not asking your guys to do too much. And, and, you know, even I like what he talked about, about, you know, a running back, right? Like it's when the defensive corner, it's like, okay, is the running back behind the quarterback? Is he on the strong side? Is he on the strong side? And then moves to the weak side. All of those are keys that the defensive coordinator will have their guys looking at. And if you just met, like, if you just kind of toy with them, if you basically get in their head and kind of get them sitting back unsure, so the defense can't really play downhill, then that buys you just that split extra second. And it makes it very easy. So he said, you know, you know, what he talked about is like, you know, there may be some things that are different, you know, just because you'll tweak it obviously to one player's strength. He said, but the bulk of it is going to be the same, right? Like it's going to be the same because it's just like running a lot of wide zone. They're going to be able to rely on Tyler Algier and get Jaron Hall, who presumably will be the starter against Arizona and get him moving out of the pocket similar. You know, he won't be as accurate as Zach Wilson is. He may not have as quite as strong of an arm as Zach Wilson does, but he can make all the throws as needed. And, you know, that they will, it is a very quarterback friendly system, like you said. And so I, I, you know, I think what you brought up, but, you know, we didn't talk about this before the show, like the 2006 and 2021 being 2007, I think that's a very, very good comparison. And even this is something we talked about last year, right? Like that we talked about this going into last year, how 2019 was kind of 2005. Like you saw the flashes, but then at the end of the season, it just kind of left a sour taste in your mouth. And that's, you know, we need to circle back to that just as a fan base. Cause how many people said that, that they could see Zach Wilson taking a John Beck like step forward. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Right. And uh, as much as I like to give myself credit for being right, because it doesn't happen very often. We, we haven't really talked about that. And a lot of fans, I think, said that, that a healthy Zach Wilson was going to look a lot like John Beck. And that's exactly what he looked like. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of another thing that I liked, what well, I thought it was really interesting what Alex talked about and it kind of related to of how it was interesting that like he never actually played football growing up like he started as the video guy in high school and was doing the 
play-by-play commentary on the local on the high school radio station and then got into the video room at an fcs program and that's like really really started diving in was just breaking down film like being the video guy as a volunteer student Mm. for an fcs program and so one thing though that he talked about and we kind of talked about this a lot especially with the defense and kind of how guys harp on you know fans harp on our defensive scheme of where like you don't really know what's going on and something I never thought of they brought up is like, you know, you can watch things, but unless you are like, you can get a, you fans will have a decent pulse of, you know, what the BYU offense is trying to do because we watch BYU every single week. Like you kind of get a feel for like, you know, Jeff Grimes style or Robert and nice style, right. Or Brandon Doman and Ty Detmer's lack of style. And <laughs> the, but when you're watching a random other game, you don't really have that. Like, it's hard to tell what is what the, they're trying to do and like what is just a mistake and so it's kind of like a lot of the times it's like if something is a head scratching and it never happens again then it's probably just a player making a mistake and that's you know that's something i never i mean it makes sense but i never really thought of it before but then also he said like you know coaches if you're if you're a coach that's something where you know those all of those motions and you know pre-snap alignments when they make a difference if you're a coach towards the end of the season, you've got, you know, 10, 11 games of tape that you're trying to go through and find things. And you're trying to you know, make make like you said, make a mental note of like, Oh, this seemed weird in week three, but then if it never happened again, it's probably players screwing up and it wasn't actually part of the game plan. But then it's like, now you have to, you have all of these things. And so you're obviously trying to find a tendency, but if there's no real tendency, then you're kind of just guessing of like, well, we do this. And so I think that if, we do this again and maybe they pick up on this then they'll try to counter it with this like it really is just like a chess match guessing game so it's like when you're watching a play and you know and you see like a coach you know you're trying to be like oh this is what they're trying to do or like when out of this like that's kind of like the coaches are doing the same thing they're just better at that because they know for more keys to look at rather than we just kind of have a gut feel and so that was kind of really interesting that i never really necessarily thought about of you know, just the volume of things. And so it's not that you have to do a ton of different things. You just have to give the appearance of a ton of different things because like they're just had like, you know, enough to keep them honest, right? Like it's, you don't have to run the jet sweep a ton, but if you always have that motion there, it's always going to hold the safety for that split second to create a little bit more separation because there is the off chance and you run it three or four times a game is all you need just to create that little, little extra bit of separation uh, because they're worried about you giving that quick handoff on the end around off the jet sweep. I, I love it. I, I love anybody, frankly, who was not a former player in some facet that starts to learn and get really good at the nuance of football, like football. You're not born. Uh, you're born with football talent, right? Like you can be, but like learning the game of football, it's not something like that can't be learned. Uh, Mike Leach. Do you really think that Mike Leach would have been any sort of good at like football, the game? Like, no, he's like six feet. He's never been particularly athletic, but he learned how to play. I love it. I I, I really love it. Um, it, I don't know, man. And it, I think that learning, like just learning the game and seeing it, not like a football player, like it's that kind of stuff that really sets it up like sets you up to run things like trick plays, right? Because it's an attitude of, Hey, this seems like it's going to make sense. I think I found a tendency. Let's try this. And you can do that. 
But if you're just looking at things like a traditional football coach would, you maybe don't see that opportunity. But if you have the attitude of, I'm going to find something different, I'm going to try to catch my guy off guard, trick plays really work. And you saw that with BYU. Obviously, Aaron Roderick, Jeff Grimes, those guys were football players. But it's like they had that kind of mindset and that attitude when they were putting together their playbook. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing when we did talk about the gadget plays and the interviewing kind of said, and I've kind of always felt this way, especially about going for fourth down. Like if it's always fourth and short, go for it because, you know, what your fourth down conversion percentage, like one way or the other doesn't really matter, but it's like you, it carries over into every other play because it's like, you're kind of telling your guys like, Hey, I expect us to win. And I believe in you to go do it. And the trick play is kind of the same thing, right? Like it makes it fun. It makes it exciting. You know, like the defense is sitting back on their heels and you do it enough that they have to worry about it. But then it also kind of sets up that mindset of, you know, it's like, okay, well, if, BYU is always running trick plays. And this is what Alex brought up. Like if BYU is always running trick plays, that means they're running that in practice. Their, their defense is probably used to like seeing all these trick plays. Like we're probably not going to be able to run a trick play. And so it's kind of like, if you have that carved out as like a niche thing, it kind of makes it harder. Like it, it's like the mental game and like the, you know, the, the mind games and kind of, you know, the psychology of building a game plan is very real. And so I think that is something that really this, I mean, this offense that has, and obviously, you know, Jeff Grimes did the run install and was the run game coordinator. Aaron Roderick has been the pass game coordinator and he did the pass install and he and Fessy worked together to, to design and Steve Clark worked together to design this passing scheme. The evolution that we saw of this last year and really, you know, Zach Wilson's understanding of it and getting the offensive line into a good place with it, whatever it was, you know, and having good receivers who we could really count on is a fun system. Like it's fun to watch as a player or as a fan, it's easy for players to come in and play. It puts them in positions to succeed. It doesn't ask them to do too much. So in a lot of ways, it's the exact opposite of what the first offensive staff under Kalani Satake was trying to do of like, you know, we're just going to, you know, we're going to be a pro style. We're just going to run down. And like, it was very bland, right? Like it was just there and you, we're doing nothing to create a competitive edge. It was just, we're just going to line up and, you know, we're just going to, you know, out muscle you and whatever. And it's like, you can't do that. Like, can't do that. No, no. Like unless you're Alabama, but even Alabama doesn't do that anymore. Oh, right? Yeah. Like, even, even Nick Saban had to adjust, right? Like, and he'll talk about it that he learned seven, eight years ago that, Hey, I got to have an elite offense because I can't just win on defense and running the football anymore. Frankly, I think that's why, uh, I think Utah suggested as well. I think Kyle Whittingham and Andy Ludwig are trying to do some different things, but I think that's why Utah's never been able to take that step. They've always had the elite defense, but uh, football's changed. You've got to be really creative and really different on offense in order to win. And uh, yeah, I agree that that's uh, that's something that a lot, most teams, all teams, even Alabama can't really do. Uh, there was some basketball news, sort of. I guess it's like basketball adjacent news. Alex Marcello is coming back. I suppose that's news, but you've heard about that. Uh, Both Gak went to Utah, went back to Utah, I suppose is the right way to put it. He was at Utah, went to Minnesota, went back into the portal. And now he's going to Utah again. I mean, Jake Toulson did it, but I guess that's he's true. followed his coach. So it sort yeah. of made sense. Both Gak didn't. What's going to be interesting is uh, BYU was after Bothgak. They wanted him. They got beat out by Utah. But when BYU was mentioned as a school who was after Bothgak, 
there were a lot of people, Utah fans, who are going to have to delete some tweets because they, Both is not that good. If you can, if you're prioritizing an eight points and six rebounds kind of guy, and that's going to be your difference maker. Uh, Listen, that's all that Utah really has. So on our agenda, I have Bob Gak. There was a picture that uh, was named Craig Smith. That's our new coach, right? Smith. And he, uh, he posted a picture and it was like, New, it was like first practice or like summer workouts with the team, whatever. And it was awkward. He was just like him and three guys. And I know it just the picture was just who happened to be there, but it's like basically with what their trend roster situation has been like, I had to question for a second if that was literally the only three people they had on the team. <laughs> uh, I have on the agenda, like written out word for word, Bothgak went to Utah, but who really cares? That's it. I mean, who really cares? Frankly, I'm glad that I don't have to learn if his name is Both Gak or Both Gok or Both whatever. Or and I don't both, have to both see both Gatch. Yeah, That's I don't what? have to I don't have to see both written down and think, oh, that might be Both. What am I actually reading? I mean, with all due respect to the guy, his name created me some unnecessary turmoil in my life. And now I don't have to worry about that. So win for me, frankly. It's I mean, there aren't really Besides him, there hasn't been any um, there hasn't been any other news really in the last week on that transfer portal front. Um, and really all of the recruiting news that we are starting to see is in the football front, right? Like it's the dead period is now officially over, right? It is started on June. They ended it on May 31st. How many how many days are May 31? 30 May 31st. Yeah, you gotta do the knuckle thing. Yes, yes. I got I can never do the rhyme. It's always I'm always team I'm team knuckles with that. Yeah, um that and sense. the and so the dead period is over. So coaches for the first time since last March could, you know, actually well, that was dirt because there's a dead period after signing day. So basically since last since December of 2019, really, or January of 2020 is the last time coaches were able to actually go visit players. Um, so that is over camps are starting and football recruiting is getting weird. It's getting really weird. Uh, it hasn't got weird for BYU yet. They have not hosted any unofficial visitors. Typically the first week of June is a dead period in most years. So BYU's coaches tend to go on vacations and stuff this first week of June before the camps really go like full swing. Uh, so I don't know if they're on vacation now or whatever, but I would expect BYU to really hit the ground running hard uh, starting next week once camps go live. I know that there are a lot of dudes who are going to be there on the 7th. Uh, there's a lot of dudes who are planning on being there on the 14th. So uh, BYU is going to get their shot at these guys. It's going to be fun to see what happens. Um BYU has a scholarship crutch. We've talked about it a lot, but here's what's going to be weird this year is with so many players coming back because of the COVID year and then having this like weird free COVID year kind of out there, there's a lot of teams that aren't going to fill up their 25 uh, letters of intent this year. And then with the transfer portal going absolutely haywire with talent, uh, a lot of teams are reserving scholarships especially lower level teams to try to get those p5 bounce backs so i don't know what to make of that i don't think anybody really does but it's going to be fascinating to see how it unfolds and how it impacts high school recruiting Um, it's gonna be fun to watch so it'll be good 
it will start to pick up. If you're not seeing pictures of recruits on campus, you know, on Twitter at BYU, don't freak out. Wait till Monday. You'll see the pictures. Everything will be fine. And uh, it's getting weird. Yeah. I mean, recruiting is getting weird. Another weird thing, Flintstones vitamins. Did you know that they're called Flintstones super beans now? Like it's still a multivitamin, but they branded them as Flintstones super beans. We buy our kids that we, they got the gummy bears. Uh, Well, that's what we do too. But that's, I'm looking at it on Amazon. It was an ad. Flintstone Super Beans, kids multivitamin with immunity support. Heck, Flintstones complete, gummies, gummy sour. There are so many Flintstones. I, Which is so weird because the Flintstones aren't on TV. Like kids don't know who the hell the Flintstones are anymore. No, I don't even, I don't even remember what the Flintstones are anymore. Yeah, like, like Flintstones to me is like John Goodman and Halle Berry. Like I don't know what a cartoon Flintstones. Yeah. Dude, that is so super beans. Oh, oh, so I guess they got the gummies, but now they got jelly beans too. They're just like, oh, we got to differentiate. Very weird. I don't know. Weird times for Bayer, really, you know, the new COVID vaccine, pharma in general, right? Like, I don't know. It's just a very strange time at all. But Jeff, this has been a, a wild ride of an episode. It is now pushing midnight in your neck of the woods. Uh, you yeah, had a very, 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 you had a very, very long day. And we apologize to all of our faithful listeners who, you know, for getting this out a day late. Um, you know, we had to, you know, we are getting our schedules aligned with Alex as something we want to do. And we will have, and we'll get it in the show notes. Uh, I think he sent me the link. If not, then we will tweet out tomorrow that we do have, if you would like, if you have not purchased the 2020 um BYU offensive scouting report from Throaty Publishing. Um, he will, we will have a discount available for our listeners um, to go ahead, and so we'll put that link in the show notes. And that's a pretty dope name, Throaty Publishing. Like so, that's cool. Yeah, and I mean, I'm excited to see. Like he talked about it in the interview a little bit. Um, that you know, it's they do have some. He's got one, like a full video course up that he brought. Like he's starting to collaborate more with other coaches. And, um, he's got a full like video course up on the Dave Aranda three, four defense. Um, and that one, and so it's like, you know, he's kind of, it's trying to expand and basically kind of make it a hub for kind of all of these, you know, high school coaches across the country that are trying to make their own thing and kind of, you know, put their own thing together as a one-stop shop. We need to get him in touch with Corley because, uh, that's like Corley Ward. If you don't know him, he is a, a staff contributor over at Cougar Sports Insider, does our film room articles. This is the kind of stuff he geeks out on all the time. Like he's always just like asking me if I have all 22 film and sending me random things, really nerdy stuff that most of the time I don't understand, but Corley slurps it up and he's really good at it. So, yeah. So it's, I don't know if you've ever seen Coach Tube like YouTube, but coaches it's, they have a similar thing where it's like, they've got like offensive breakdowns and film stuff. And it's kind of like, you know, you can upload it and it's like just a platform for putting stuff up. And so you can, you know, like there's, I just pulled it up and it's like, Oh, here's a do like, you can book it. There's a two hour thing breaking a two hour film breakdown of the Nevada air raid hybrid, right? Like, you know, you can find, it's just all random sorts of stuff like that. So he's trying to do his own, um, and trying to do his own thing there at 30 publishing. So we'll put that in the show notes and we will get him and Corley in touch because they should work more together. Uh, Jeff, do you have Speaking any of other- Corley? I, well, I just have one more Corley nugget. 
he's on a vacation in Seattle and uh, is wearing, I think, exclusively give him hell Brigham stuff. So looks great out there with Jim McMahon mooning the uh, mooning the reporters on a shirt. He looks phenomenal. He's got Andy Reid letting us know that every down is a throwing down. He looks great. Give him hellbrigham.com. Buy your stuff. You can't buy any Zach Wilson stuff or we'll get sued, but we're going to mock them. And soon, 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 we're going to have something with a hippo and cocaine on the side. It's coming very, very near future. Lots of fun stuff. That's it. That's it for me. I got to figure out how to make a hippo cocaine shirt and make it feel tasteful because it's a family show. So we got to make it so that, you know, family appropriate. Family appropriate cocaine hippos is on the docket. And until then, Jeff, give them hell. Give them hell.